listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Hi, and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today I'm joined by Lorraine Dryland, Alex Tata, Jatenda Aurora, and James Blake to discuss cyber resilience. Before we delve into deeper into the topic, uh, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Lorraine, would you like to kick us off? Hi there, I'm Lorraine Dryland. I'm the Global CISO for First Inter Investors. I've been here a while now. Um, I say year one, um, but actually I've missed two years for the last two years, so it's actually year three. Thanks Lorraine. Alex? Hi, um, I'm the CTO for our cyber part of our consulting business at Talish UK, which is a large aerospace and defence uh, systems integrator. Alex, Jitenda? Hi, I'm Jitenda Arora. I'm the UK CISO and also the NSC CISO for Deloitte. Stuff, last but not least, James? My name is James Blake. I'm the field CISO for Rubric. Um, but I've knocked around the industry for a while in various different roles. So, stuff. Okay, now we're all introduced. Let's move on to the topic of focus. Um, so, you all provided a question on cyber resilience. Um, as usual, I work around the room asking you to each of you to pose the question and the reasons behind it. And each of you will have an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So, um, we'll get started with James. James, do you want to pose your question? Well, my, my question is the, the most obvious one. Um, it's usually when you get 10 CISOs in a room and ask them what cyber resilience means, you get 15 answers. Um, so I'd just like to ask, what does cyber resilience mean to you? Thanks, James. Lorraine, we'll come to you first. Yeah, um, for me, it just means the ability to um, recover, resolve and come out of a situation with minimal impact as possible and with minimal, minimal financial impact as possible uh, and you can get your continued operations. There's no way we can sit there and say that every single part of your operation has to continue with a cyber event, you're going to have a level of downtime. So it's, I think it's more about that, that recovery time, making that you recover with most minimal impact possible and as, with the fastest impact possible and with the least cost. Thanks, Lorraine. And Chandler, come to you. Hi, so for me, um, you know, whenever I think of cyber resilience, I, I think of it in two terms, right? It's a proactive side of it and the reactive side of it. So basically it means, you know, as we are, you know, the threat landscape is changing. It's about keeping an eye out and anticipating when you think something is going to go wrong, effectively having a more proactive capability, which is providing the bird's eye view to say, okay, you know, how are we doing? How the threat landscape is changing, how vulnerable we are, what our attack surface looks like, and anticipating something before it goes wrong. And but I always work in an assume breach scenario means things will go wrong, and when they go wrong, that's where your reactive capability comes in very quickly, where you are trying your best to kind of withstand that situation. So, in terms of you know what's going on, getting your arms around it, and then recover from that situation pretty robust in a robust manner, so minimizing the impact. So for me, cyber resilience is kind of the anticipating, withstanding, and also then and the very solid recovery capability to respond to it. So thanks, Jinder. Uh, and Alex, finally? Yeah, so it's interesting. I really resonated with what uh, both Lorraine and uh, Jatinda said. Um, with Stand, I agree. For me, resiliency is about adapting to the attack. Uh, so the words withstanding works for me. Um, and I think it's slowly different from recoverability, although recoverability is part of it. To me, the ability to be resilient is despite an attack occurring, what can I do to minimize it while continuing to operate? But it's really, for me, uh, it's about that not letting it happen to me and then quickly recovering. It's about adapting to it and continuing to operate. So that's when we start bringing in a whole load of a different technologies, processes, and approaches beyond the traditional identify, detect, protect, respond, recover. It's about actually, no, 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 how do we adapt and throw different things at the attacker to slow them down, as well as building up different ways to sort of offload operational capabilities so we continue to keep on operating. Thanks, Alex. And Jay, do you want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, no, it's great. It's, it's, we saw uh, three CISOs and three answers are almost identical. So I see that as progress in, in uh, how we go forward. I mean, um, you know, I spent a large part of my career building socks by preventative and detective capabilities for, for some fairly large com companies. And I think this, we can protect everything and building the walls taller and the moats wider and the adversary just builds a taller ladder and a better boat, right? So we set this expectation with the business that if only we have more people, if only we have more money, we can protect you from everything. And it's just not an adult conversation to have with businesses. And I think it's why a lot of CISOs that I've worked with over the years have very short careers. <laughs> and they set that expectation, something happens, and then they're looking for a new job. And I think, you know, the, the new breed of CISOs I'm seeing coming along are having much more adult conversations around mismanagement rather than security. And, um, you know, just from having been in an organisation that pretty much our answers to anything was backing articulated lorry of money on it and then burying the problem uh, there. And, you know, Jahinder's organisation, uh, I love a, a, a statistic from there which says the average enterprise has 130 different security products in it. So, you know, and there's a law of diminishing returns. Right? We're creating friction with the business. We lack agility to respond to business because we've got all these security controls in place. We've got spiraling headcount. We're building infrastructure while the rest of the business is you know, um, outsourcing infrastructure to, to cloud providers and things like that. So the resilience conversation needs to be about focused risk management. It needs about managing that impact that came up, which is the side of the risk equation that doesn't get much attention because that's IT's problem. Um, and I think ransomware is, is the kind of symptom of the fact that we haven't had very good resiliency. You know, ransomware is just a symptom. It's not really a cause of the problem. And the cause is we, we've overly focused on likelihood reduction at the cost of being able to, you know, withstand um, cyber incidents. And we need to get used to doing that as a BAU activity. So that, that that's my tuppence word. <laughs> Thanks very much, JJ. Okay, great. Um, okay, we'll move to Alex's question, please. Sure. So my question is really around the balance uh, between investment on efficiency versus resiliency. And as I sort of, in my head, we've spent a whole lot, you know, the past 20 years using technology to enable us to work uh, leaner, quicker, more interconnected. And so everything is about pushing the velocity of your enterprise faster and faster, which is fantastic, right up until the point where something happens. And we've seen a couple of uh, examples from the most obvious being the pandemic, but also NotPetya as a way of impacting businesses and ransomware to even the Evergiven in the Suez Canal. But little incidents and ripples somehow have outsized consequence. And obviously, we're trying to, in my head, balance between um, a sort of a one-time massively disrupting event versus a continuous overhead cost of sales cost of increasing to become more resilient. And I'm just curious, how do you guys or how do you see balancing those cases for actually reduced efficiency in favor of resiliency? Thanks, Alex. Okay, Joe Thunder, we'll come to you first, please. Okay, um, I have a bit of a view on it coming from operational resilience perspective because I have been head of operational resilience before in one of the financial services. And and when we were having those conversations, Alex, what you're talking about is what we call um, extreme but plausible scenario. It may not happen very frequently, but if it happens, it can bring an organization to its knees and not being able to fulfill the obligation we have made to our customers and the clients. And that's where you need to plan for those extreme but plausible scenarios. It means, you know, in 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 case of uh, financial service, we used to talk of pillar three capital. How how much capital needs to be kept aside to be able to respond to those situations? So, so coming back from that perspective, you know, when I started on that journey of operational resilience, obviously one thing that comes out in the plausible scenario is a wide scale coordinated cyber attack, which can actually create a wide scale impact for the organization. And when you go on that journey. Then you start talking about, okay, what are the critical business processes that you need to make resilient? 
if you try to make everything resilient, every application, every piece of infrastructure, then you're going to in invest huge amount of money and it's a diminishing return and everything else. It's kind of a bigger problem. So for a bank, as an example, giving new mortgages out is not a critical business process, even though somebody who runs mortgage say, no, no, absolutely. It's absolutely critical business process. It's actually not versus ability to pay the customers, ability for them to withdraw the money, for them to be able to kind of transact is absolutely um, not able to offer new savings product at that time. It's not a priority, but being able to pay out if somebody wants to withdraw the money, that's the priority from the outcome perspective. So when you think about the efficiency and everything else, I think everything hinges upon what I call the end-to-end -end mapping of the critical business processes and what are the applications, core infrastructure, people, that plays part into it and building the resilience into it so that you are focusing on what needs to be absolutely essential at that point when it happens, when it matters the most and investing in there and not investing in everything. That way you can actually bring the efficiencies. You can also reduce the overall cost, which is required and plan for that adverse event that may happen. So thanks, Chanda. And I'll come to you. So I'm going to come at that from a slightly different angle in that I'm not quite sure that driving efficiency is, is competitive with resiliency. Um, I think there could be a level of efficiency you drive that which could support resiliency, right? Because how much inefficiency we do have is actually causing us the risk, causing us the area that where we have the challenges around, you know, the attack surface, etc. So I think actually if you do it in consultation with the business, look at the business risk appetite. And our statement is to balance risk and opportunity, right? What are we trying to do and achieve here? What are the risks in doing it? And how do we drive to make sure that's a level of efficient and resilient at the same time? Now, I know that some of the things we could be talking about there is like, do we have double hat, right? Do we have failovers and just in case, et cetera? I get that side of it. And I think that's where you come into the balance and risk and opportunity with your critical services. I completely agree with Jatin's point around um, mapping business critical processes and business impact assessments. They're absolutely essential, not just for the resiliency piece, but there's lots of other cyber business and other you know, continuity and just general parts of the business that, that benefit from knowing what the business cares about, what are the goals, and how do you transfer those goals into risk, and how do you then transfer that into a level of control or you know protective capability? So, I think if you look at it, that efficiency doesn't always necessarily mean um, cutbacks. That actually it could be driving the efficiency down into your your attack footprint and other areas. So thanks, Lauren. And finally, James. Excellent. Well, I'm going to come at it a slightly pincer movement because I, th I think the problem comes at both ends. We, we tend to drive efficiency tactically, right? We look at how can we automate what an analyst does? How do we deploy a saw and all these things? And, and it's just usual. We're trying to use technology rather than solve the actual problem, right? And efficiency really should come from that risk management, which, which goes back to the point around operational resilience. And you know, I'm I'm an ex-financial services guy myself. And you know, when we were when I was at JP Morgan, we spent a lot of time focusing on what the service is, what our regulatory obligations to deliver certain things to show that we're um, you know operationally resilient because we have daily requirements to do that. And that would drive what we do right the way down, right? And I think we have very immature ways as security people of assessing risk. We use we love qualitative ways of doing things that are full of bias, full of all those problems. We don't talk about loss distributions. We show a five by five matrix where we're timesing two ordinal scales or two nominal scales against each other, which breaks math. Right? You can't do that. Yet it seems to be the basis of a lot of our spending. And if I look at my old budget, like six hundred and fifty million dollars a year. And we're basing that spending on uh, on broken math, right? So going back and actually starting to quantitatively look at risk, uh, and you know Douglas Hubbard, who wrote the superb book How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk, we have a lot of people that are resistant to measuring things, right? Because they say we don't have the data, but we don't need perfect data. We just need to reduce uncertainty to a level that we can make better decisions. And you know boards and senior leaders in the business understand that, right? They understand they never have perfect information, but it's about making 
decisions based on the best information. So the first thing I would say is we need to change how we assess risk to be much more quantitatively uh, in how we do it. And that doesn't need to be heavy. Even small organizations can replace um, nominal and ordinal scales with percentile chances and um, degrees of loss uh, so that they can perform some Monte Carlo modeling or something like that around creating a loss distribution. And then when it comes to efficiency from the bottom, once you're directing those resources at the right risks, we need to break out this yearly cycle that we're in where we have to spend the budget, we won't get it next year. So we do a risk assessment in November, then January we select a control area, then February put an RFI out, and then by June we've down-selected a vendor, and then we've got three months to deploy and integrate and operationalize it before we're in, in this hamster wheel of buying another product next year. You know, organizations have far too many security products as it is, and too many people to manage those. So it's all about that adult conversation about risk and then how do we apply those people operationally to platforms that are integrated with the right processes to support them. So, so that would be my answer. Great stuff, thanks James. Okay, uh, Alex, would you like to add anything further to that? Yeah, no, this is a really good conversation. I love the way everybody came at it slightly differently. And the reason for me putting it in is I was hoping to drive that conversation as James eloquently did around the idea of risk and measuring risk. Um, for me, the reason why topics of resiliency has popped up and the sort of balance and efficiency resiliency is um, the past you know, 20 years, we've been thinking about measuring risk in terms of component-based assessment. All of our risk assessment models are all about divide up everything we have into individual assets and measure the loss of CIA on any one of them. And we're great at articulating and understanding certain risks. And then we measure them and we can find them. And what we're finding the resiliency and the reason why I was pushing on efficiency is because we're not great at identifying um, interconnectedness and we're not going to find uh, interdependencies, knock-on effects, system-driven approaches. We don't have a really great way of modeling our business. And Jacinda talked about that, of modeling and uh, identifying your business processes, which sounds great. It's really easy to say. In reality, it's almost impossible for us to really dive down. We've got to create almost a digital twin of our entire business in order to identify all of those interdependencies, which... For a people and a technology perspective, we've over time made do with less and less because budgets have been shrinking. So, okay, well, John now does three different things and Tanya over here does five different things. And we try to then substitute people for technology to automate that when the technology breaks, we suddenly don't know how. We don't know what to do because we've lost that depth of context in people and processes to support things going wrong. Instead, we've we've sort of abstracted up with technology into contextual layers. And then finally, somebody at the top looks at it and says, there's a blinking light red. Oh, God, what does that mean? I don't know because I'm not on site. That, that blinking red light is occurring 5,000 miles away in a different part of the business. And it's that trying to encourage the business to think about all those interconnectedness and all those things going wrong. What do you do? Uh, that I think is is interesting. So I'm really glad that you know everybody took that question and uh, ran with it in a really interesting way. I'm just going to add one thing to it, Alex. Listening to your comment, um, you know the one of the most difficult part that had in the journey to the operation resilience was actually having the knowledge and intellect to say if we are initiating a payment, which application it goes through to the time the payment is made, and the reconciliation process how it works because all of that knowledge doesn't exist on a piece of paper. You have to draw those business process maps, understanding which application is hooking up to some of them as legacy. And in the new world, it might be making a call to some of the past applications. So how do you know before something goes wrong to really understand what actually has gone wrong? And if you do not have that mapped out, when that will happen, that's going to reduce your ability significantly to be able to kind of bounce back. And even as you mentioned rightly, so to keep on operating those critical business processes, so you're not letting your customers down. Yeah, it's, I, and that's just so common. Um, so if I go back to, you know, obviously I was a consultant building these socks and the first place we'd start because we have to do triage and prioritize that is let's have a look at your CMDB. 
Yes. <laughs> okay. The, the, you know, it's the foundation of all cybersecurity frameworks, and businesses know where about 10 to 20% their assets are. And then when they know those assets, it's hardware and software, which these days you can instantiate in the cloud of a virtual machine, a container in seconds. And the value is in the data. The regulatory compliance obligations are around the data. People just don't know how it's used. And if it isn't the CMDB, you know, one one customer, we had a CRM and it was so hard to use. Everyone was just throwing all the customer data in email trails and SharePoint servers, right? So they didn't even realize this was driving the the business processes in the, the business. And I just find it, you know, it is a difficult thing to do, but if we don't do it, everything is a farce. Like everything we do as a career and all those people we employ and the controls we, de you know, we're deploying, uh, and it goes back to what I said earlier, pragmatism. Well, let's not start with every single business process. Let's take our most important and just do that. And then we'll move to the next one and the next one. You know, you've just got to be better than you were yesterday to make progress. You don't need a waterfall project to, to learn every single asset in your business, uh, which is going to take seven years. And by the time you get there, uh, all your assets have changed anyway and you've moved to the cloud or or something like that. I just... Yeah, mind boggles. Yeah. The, the, we've we've been dealing with that for a while though, and if people aren't taking note of that and actually building process that survives people, right? Because that's kind of what you're saying. The process is falling down or could fall down because it's just getting done because someone's doing it. But the whole point of when you're building new projects, new programs, all of this is in the start of those capabilities. I, appreciate legacy aspects you're going back to unpick a lot of things and that knowledge could be lost so you're probably having to reiterate certain things but nowadays we should be building that into our implementations our deliveries these target operating models the dependencies the, you know the applications what's it linked to the mapping the flows these are all things that should be are and certainly there we are um, in the, the mapping process at the beginning when we're setting up project delivery and you know how do we deliver a successful project well that's because it's integrated it's implemented the end documents that come out of that are service readiness documents are you know if this world collapsed tomorrow i could just go build it from these documentation and capabilities and blueprints that we've all got so and the processes are here and we've tested those processes so you know if people aren't in that position now they've had long enough to get to those positions and i think they really need to be bringing them up to the fore yes we can work on the legacy it's difficult but you know, all this new stuff we're bringing in, we're saying that we're up with this new technologies. We should be doing it from the get-go. I, I completely agree with you, Elaine, uh, and I love it. And I just sometimes, um, I feel as if with resiliency, we're fighting a similar battle that we did with, as it were, security a while ago, which is, look, if everybody just did the right things, we they, did, they treated their passwords in the right way, they acted. If people just acted in a secure manner, for God's sakes, we'll solve a lot of this problem. Oops, wait, we recognize we're dealing with people. And I think it's the same thing with the business process. If everybody just documented and operated it correctly, and we have to realize that it's our businesses are organic. They just are. Everything grows organically. And we have a, a, a we're trying to force engineering onto what's organic. When people first designed the ARPANET that turned turn into the internet, we had a general understanding of how things go. But over time, so many people contribute and it becomes organic that it's almost impossible to model correctly. And I think that's where resiliency is popping up is, is learning how to handle and how to deal with the fact that we don't have control, we don't have full knowledge, we don't have the ability to map everything. So now what? As Jitinda talked about of assume compromise, assume something's going to go wrong. Now what? So turn things off intentionally. You're talking about, James, how do you sort of map this out? It's easy. Stop turning off services one by one. See who screams, see who has problems. And if they do, great. They'll learn to work around it. And suddenly, and I'm sure we'll come on later to the concepts of chaos monkeys and other ideas, but if we can work and we can exist in the concept of things going wrong, ah, it doesn't matter. I can, you know, it does matter, but it's not world ending. It's just inconvenient we'll be in a lot better place. But we have to, first of all, we have to admit that we don't have control and we don't have full knowledge. Sorry, Jacinda. So just one thing I want to mention on that, that, that was very interesting because uh, when we do some simulation exercises with execs and everybody else, and we say, oh, this has gone wrong. No, 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 it can't go wrong. It can't go wrong. We have all the controls and a lot of, especially the technical people who are sitting in the conversations, 
what I call, you know, it's an ICAP process I used to run called internal capital adequacy assessment process. And we have this um, simulation there. And as part of the ICAP, we will say, oh, this will go wrong. And people will come back and say, no, it cannot go wrong. And you have to get them to understand, no, assume it has gone wrong. Now what? What are you going to do about it? What? How many people you need? What money you need? What kind of customer redress is going to look like? And then people start thinking, aha. And suddenly you see the light bulb moment happening. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I work for a company, obviously a large part of our business is backing up companies to, you know, when, when ransomware happens, that, that that's a large part of what we do. So we, we take people through because they've got to build their process. They've got to build the recovery process, right? The technology doesn't provide that. And you start working through these ransomware playbooks and you're like, well, we'll call him. We go, well, voice over IP doesn't work. Well, we'll look up their details on SharePoint. What SharePoint? We'll look at the SIM um, to investigate the incident. What SIM? You know, we'll go to the backup server. What backup server? How? What network? How are you going to access it? And when you actually start walking people through these these black swan events, they are high impact, low frequency. And I encourage you know mapping of risks properly to realise and prepare for them. But you know, just I wanted to ask one question of all of you because it, it came up from what Alex was saying. So yeah, there's a lot of technical debt, there's a lot of legacy, right? And we haven't recorded how we've used assets historically and how they've changed. And we all know this. We've all sat running, you know, being CISOs in the organizations like this. And I just think this digital transformation, we have an opportunity as long as we engage with the business and we understand the risks of moving to the cloud of actually, well, containerization, virtualization as well, actually understanding a business asset at the point of instantiation, right? If we can link it to a service catalog where they have to link it to a business service, we have an opportunity of actually understanding what services a piece of infrastructure is supporting. I just worry the fact that a lot of people aren't engaging with the business and having adult conversations and trying to resist the move to these new technologies because I'm sat in the basement and I want to be secure. So the business is just doing it anyway. And we've lost that opportunity to actually discover going forward what we're doing. I mean, I just wanted to throw that out there and what you think of that. So I think it goes to the point I was saying earlier, there's a level of preparation, right? You, you know, there's stuff that we had previously, but you know, having um, blueprints, having uh, aspects to follow, having processes there that just put gateways in that allow you to do that. And I think you pointed it out, conversation, right? That the security isn't a silo, it's a service provider to the business that helps it decide what risk it's willing to take. And it helps it document and assess and manage those risks, right? It's the business has got to take that. So the conversation has to be with the business or you can't be a successful security function, right? So, you know, if there are teams out there that are not engaging with the business to, to get these points or understand, then they're setting themselves up for failure because, as you've pointed out, the business will move on. It has to operate and it's not security doing its job. It's security's the service capability, just as um, infrastructure and technology and other aspects are in the business. Security is just another one of those to, to make it happen. Opportunity and risk. Yeah, and I think I would say that, you know, I have been in a conversation in, in, in one of the organization where we were really concerned about, and board was really, really concerned about ransomware and our ability to kind of work, ability to operate and keep providing services to customer. And, and we had a very good, honest conversation from the business standpoint. And we said, okay, what, what really matters most, what we used to call material zone. And we created a very different network segmentation for that and put a very different level of controls compared to anything else. We made it inconvenient for people to gain access to those services. And there was a trade-off between security and user experience. But the business decided in an unlikely scenario, if this goes out, whether it's because of technology outage, ransomware, we're gonna, basically we can't just recover, we're gonna hurt and we will have a significant issues. So they said, okay, we will compromise on the user experience, we'll compromise and we will invest in security a lot more. And and actually when the NotPetya happened, some of those, even NIMDA that happened a long time ago, organization came out sailing beautifully because rest, every part of the network infrastructure, they could rebuild, they could sacrifice, but this core infrastructure was untouched. They didn't have anything. So the blast radius was almost like Fort Knox, where you just you have to go through various layers to get into that and get come out of it. So I think if 
I, I really agree with Lorna's point is about end of the day, cyber is an enabling thing. So we need business input to understand what you really want to protect, what level of protection is required, what kind of architecture is required. I think organically organizations have grown and grown and grown. Cyber has come quite late in the game and now we're trying to retrofit. I think that's the problem. Yeah, and I agree with, so going to your point, uh, James, about understand the assets and understanding how uh, making the business, we have a real opportunity to understand things. I think I always try to uh, go into a customer if we do our consultancy and people want to understand, am I at a high, medium or low risk of cyber? And it's it's really difficult to answer because they want to get a point in time. And I always think, how do I know when somebody is good at security or it's a low risk? It's a cultural thing and it's almost a gut feeling because how do they handle new threats, new things going wrong? What's their internal process of, ah, it's just another thing. Don't worry. I'm okay. I've already thought about this. That's the definition of sort of maturity. And I think when we come to resiliency, it's the same sort of idea. How do you identify a company who's resilient? It's a company who's kind of their culture is okay with handling change and handling disruption and things going wrong. From the smallest all the way up to the biggest, they're just, it's not a big deal. They're comfortable with it. So my only concern with then trying to sort of say, okay, what's going to save us is if now we have a much better control over uh, content management and we have a better idea, then almost we're not okay then if the business doesn't follow that. So sometimes that culture of resiliency is about encouraging people that don't rely on any one thing, any one process. Uh, embrace the fact that people are people, and we're not auto, You know, we're not machines. We're going to get it wrong all the time, but okay, it's not going to be the end of the world. We've got to teach the business, everybody. We've got to be comfortable with things going wrong, which is again that risk balance decision of accepting that things are going to go wrong. Compromise is going to happen. Security events are going to occur. But okay, don't worry, we got that. <laughs> Which is, again, go back to Jutinda's point, difficult to articulate and difficult to take to people and say, are you okay with the fact that this is going to go wrong? Anyway, I'm sure we're straight off topic there, Robert. <laughs> that's, that's fine. You know, keep going. It's all good content. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, um, yeah, if everyone's got any further points, so, um, we'll come to Lorraine for her question. Okay, so mine's obviously still on resilience talks, is asking more around operational resilience and how the regulators, um, depending where you work globally, we're seeing it, Australia and Asia are in consultation at the moment where they're revising their business continuity and moving it into more operational resilience. Um, FCA and UK, et cetera, already in that space and, and have put out their requirements. Um, it's all about operational resilience, but we've been talking here about cyber resilience. And my question is, do we believe they're aligned um, and are one and the same, just another strand? And actually, do we feel that it's cyber that's leading the way on this because we are dragging the business with us? And if we are, how do we change that dynamic? Because we shouldn't necessarily be at the lead. Um, we should be in, in the in the game, but I'm not saying that you know, being in the lead tends to put you in the accountability position, which is not where we'd be. And if you start leading something, they'll do it, it's fine, they'll just continue doing it. And it's hard to change that dynamic once that horse is bolted. So, um, you know, how do we start the conversation the right way to move into that? And at what point do we join the op resilience conversation or let it catch up with us? Thanks, man. James, I'll pick up. So is that, I'll, I'll grab that, yeah. So, um, wow. That, that, there's a lot in that, right? So if I try and unpack that, the, the first thing is, and I think it's become clear in, in some of the things I've said historically, I don't think cybersecurity has a very mature in most organizations approach to risk, right? So an awful lot of security people that, that have come up to strategic roles have had technical roles and where they've managed controls and they get promoted, they get promoted, all of a sudden they're in a strategic role an operational role and they think they can buy their way and, and control everything in there. And, you know, I've come across um, a lot of CISOs like that and that isn't, and everyone had a very mature conversation around this table about risk, right, from different perspectives. But all of us know we can't stop every incident. We have to have an assumed breach 
and an impact reduction approach to what we're going to do. But the reality is, you know, if, if you listen to most podcasts about budget spend, 85 to 95 of it is spent on one axis, likelihood reduction, not impact reduction, right? And because impact reduction requires having an integrated approach, talking to the business and adult conversation and everything else. So I think the operational resiliency conversation, it, rather than the other way around, is maturing the cyber conversation, right? And I think there's an opportunity as operational resilience. I mean, it starts in FS. So the PRA, PRA and Bank of England requirements, right, has, has forced banks to address systemic risk in the way they're structured, their operations are structured. It's a much broader risk topic than just IT resiliency, right? And historically, all we would have talked about is business continuity and disaster recovery, not cyber resiliency. So cyber has suddenly come into this IT operations risk side of things, and SACA has been pushing it for years. But it's only now, really, with ransomware that we've got a seat at that table. And I don't want us to squander it. But if you look at the um, 23,000 you know, ISO standards, historically called business continuity, they're now called security and resilience standards for business continuity. So I think you know, there's from the IT operations perspective, they are recognizing that cybersecurity is a part of business continuity because of the effect that ransomware has had. So, you know, just in summary, I think, you know, we we are still very immature in the way that we we look at risk compared with the rest of the business. And I think your chief risk officer is having a far more mature talk. And there is much more mature uh, talk about managing opportunity risk and market risk and everything else going on in the board than an awful lot of CISOs can have. Uh, and, and that will By it, it it's just we're not doing it very well, I don't think. Um, operating will give us a framework to plug into, up our game, understand the services because Opres is driving that that we're trying to protect. So I see. I, I'm all for it. James, we keep losing you a bit there on the. Uh, chop your camera, maybe it'll uh, save a bit of bandwidth. Did you get any of that? Yeah, <laughs> we like got just... quite a lot. He just dropped out. He dropped out on a couple of things. But uh, that's good. Cool. Thanks for that. And uh, do you think they've come to you? Yeah. So I, I think coming from James' point, it, because in my previous life. Um, I had the pleasure of being the oper head of operations and operation resilience reporting to CRO. So I have been part of those conversations. And um, I think there was a conversation and there was a point made around the FCA, PRA and Bank of England coming. So I've been part of those initial conversation um, with the regulators when this operation resilience was theme was emerging. And I think Lauren's point is very well made that the, one of the main reason um, financial regulators have become very, very concerned about it is um, what could be the knock-on impact on the economy as a whole for a well-coordinated attack that happens, um, cyber attack that may happen across the financial services industry. And the reason we are talking a lot more about is because the accumulation of the risks example, a lot of um, right now, if you think about the concentration risk is significant uh, because there are so many services which are running in either Azure or AWS or some specific third-party service providers are, are looking at the end-to-end -end process. And, and when you start looking at that, uh, and you start looking at the impact of a simple technology incident in 2012 or 2013, I think it happened in RBS. It was an incident that happened in RBS, but had a knock-on impact in the economy because payments were not coming out of RBS to let's say HSBC if you had an account there. So that means now salary didn't come in. So people had their account overdrawn and now suddenly they're in debt. So there was a knock-on impact, which took months and months for the whole financial ecosystem to kind of you know um, balance it out and run the reconciliation and, and, and basically do deliver right outcome for the customer. And coming from that, I think that's where we are getting a lot more concerned about operation resilience. And I think cyber resilience is at the heart. My personal view is one of the risks 
which can really materialize is cyber risk. And that's why cyber resilience is at the heart of operational resilience as a theme. And that's why organization, if you think about FCA, PRA, they're taking a very keen interest in the as part of the regulatory uh, rights they have, um, supervisory audit rights they have, to really understand whether different banks and financial institutions who are critical um, to the economy and to the nation, do they understand the risk? Do they have a good end-to-end -end business process mapping? Have they invested in the right capabilities to be able to withstand and also recover when something like, like this happened? And I think it's as a theme, it's, uh, it's a new theme, it's emerging. I don't think as an industry we are where we need to be, but I personally believe it's a conversation happening absolutely in the right direction because cyber warfare um, and a well-coordinated cyber attack where you do not have to send physical forces to a country, but actually you send your cyber army against that, I think is a reality which will happen in a life lifetime. So sooner we get ahead of it, I think it's better for the nation. So thanks. Uh, Alex, yourself? Yeah, actually, I really want to pick up on what Jatinda just said, talking about cyber warfare. So obviously, Talus operates and delivers. Uh, we operate more in the delivering products and systems into critical national infrastructure, defense and government. So as opposed to being the operator of the solutions, we tend to be the design deliverers and support maintainers of it. Um, and going to that operational resiliency, um, I pick up on a couple of points, one of which is certification. So we don't tend to work in the financial services, but more sort of we have to uh, uh, get things certified from an airworthiness perspective. Obviously, we don't want people to hack into airplanes and have them fall out the air. We also don't want them to hack into naval warships and stop them from being able to defend you know, uh, our homeland. Um, so there's an idea historically of the certification being a point in time thing. We go through, we do a risk assessment, we put together a case, we get it certified. OK, we can now put it into service. And I've started to move away from that for that exact reason Lorraine was talking about of that sort of operational resiliency. It's now a continuous thing. We have to move towards continuous assurance, just like we have with aircraft. It's not just about you know, certifying it to fly once. You've got to maintain certification. You've got to maintain continued airworthiness. From a security perspective, we've got to maintain continuous assurance. And what that really means is ensuring you have a certain degree of confidence in the security and the resiliency and the uh, capability of the systems you provide. And it's got to be on a continuous basis. What evidence is giving you that knowledge versus what evidence is there saying, actually, I have a lower degree of confidence. And unfortunately, we're going to run back into that sort of economic challenge again of I want to separate the difference between a product, a system and a service, because as a vendor, if I sell you a thing and I, a great way of sort of contemplating this is the difference between Apple and Google. Apple sells you a phone at some point. They've their whole build process is evolved around at some point delivering you a thing. OK, certification, you buy it and you buy it once and it's there. Now it's your thing and you've got to try and manage and maintain it. As well as if you speak to a Google service, they're all about continuous development. You know, Gmail is never done. It's on an ongoing continuous basis. It's constantly changing, constantly evolving, constantly securing, which means, although Google's actually a bad example because they don't pay for it, but otherwise there's a traditionally we st uh, we're moving away from buying product to licensing a subscription to a service because that change in financial model allows us to continuously develop, continuously deploy. I heard a really great talk about the uh, from the CTO from Starling Bank, who describes how does their platform continuously evolve. They want to constantly push code and constantly want to update. Why? Because every day that they push code and make small changes, if anything goes wrong, it's an unbelievably minor step back to fix, whereas some of the other more traditional banks who are used to waiting and two years later delivering one giant upgrade. And then when it fails, all disaster breaks loose because they can't go backwards. That's why I go back to that cultural, again, understanding of being happy with change, being happy with things going wrong. But the culture goes away from being confident of a one thing and only one release to now being confident in our ability to manage when things go wrong. So instead of having, we've got to exist on one operating system and one life cycle, and then once that support goes, oh my God, it's a massive migration. Now just constantly change, constantly evolve and be happy with that because the more diversity, the more change that we we go and we're okay with, and the way we handle that from a security resiliency perspective, 
the greater operational resiliency we have and the greater continuous assurance. Thanks, Alice. Anything you'd like to add to that, Lorraine? Um, so it's just to your last point there about I think there's a there's a level of when you enter the market, you know, Sterling Bank has actually got in at a time where they not necessarily having to unpick a lot of legacy capabilities, right? So I think um, there's a fortunate position for people who've taken advantage of of being digitized from the get go, right? and being able to be as agile and that small and often change so that they can survive these things. But um, that wasn't understood the way it is now back in the day and, and you know, when the, you know, the systems and capabilities we had and the interconnectedness of our infrastructure now and, and you know, Jutinder's point about the banks, right? Teller goes down or you want to change the operating system in a cash machine, right? It's going to cause huge up uproar across an entire, um, you know, Infrastructure, national infrastructure. So, um, there has to be a level of coordination there, and that's that's where we have the challenges, and that's where you know some people can be really successful because they've planned themselves that way from the outset. The challenge sits with businesses who've unfortunately, unfortunately, been around for a very long time and are, you know, it wasn't known to move and be agile, and that this was the way things were going, and they're now having to play a bit of catch up and a bit of retrofit. Yeah. And, so and I'm just add, yeah, and I'm just going to add to that because working in big banks, I can I, I kind of empathize with the situation. I think you're making also is the scale, the amount of payments some of these big banks make per second per minute is very very different to some of the challenger banks and and the complex products that these organizations offer. They can't unpick some of those, right? And that's where the challenge is when somebody has been around for ages and organically grown, increase their product portfolio versus a niche players which are coming in the market. Um, and that's where the interesting thing is, but also at the same time, what's the impact to the economy when, let's say one of the niche player goes away versus one of the big organization like HSBC or Barclays gets impacted. So it's a different kind of, it's a it different is, business impact. Yeah. But that's why I, I emphasized that it was a cultural thing. Because mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. It's if we just think of it as technology and go, oh my God, to change any of the technology is going to be so much. Fun. We're already, you're already within the cultural mindset of not being comfortable with change. And admittedly, there's a whole load of business processes around how you procure new technology, how you support it, how you get funding. All of it, it trust me, internally within our business, it's we are a point-in-time delivery project-driven organization, not a continuously DevOps one, but we're having to culturally change to find out where can we do that? Where can we get better? And that's the only way to unpick it. It can't be unpicked if you set about unpicking it as a project model. Don't worry, we're going to start today. We're going to deliver it. And over time, we're going to, we're going to have a project to suddenly become continuous improvement. No, 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 no. <laughs> You've got to do continuous improvement at the beginning to get here there. Sorry, James. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was absolutely agreeing. I mean, because I, I come from in between, right? So um, obviously I had headed global cyber transformation at JPMC, right? So we're talking single clusters of systems transacting $60 trillion a day. That's 25% of all US dollar transactions in the world, right? And and they're pieced together through various different amount of, of um, technologies and, and systems working together. And one of the things that we tried to do there was drive, you know, there were projects, believe it or not, there were waterfall managed projects to implement a DevOps agile mindset in the business, right? So, so it, you know, that, that says everything about approach, but it was just about pragmatism, right? So the biggest challenge we had is we did annual risk assessments, right? Threat intelligence comes in by the minute, by the hour, by the day. If you're assessing how good your controls are, now you need to be assessing individual rules, right? And reporting on the risk to the business at point in time, not once a year, right? And that's how you get the confidence for a business to invest almost in a slush fund, right? And it's that I love the Mike Tyson take on um, a, a very old maxim, you know, no plan survives being punched in the mouth. Like every waterfall model project I've seen in an organization of any size, you upturn a rock, there's a horror story, right? And because managers that instigated the project did the PID, had no actual reality 
uh, a grasp of what's actually going on at an operational level. They've been told what they always wanted to hear rather than what's actually happening. And once you get to the coal face, you spend all your time like rebalancing the CPA on these waterfall modules and then re Lessons learned occur at the end, not when the lessons need to be learned because it's ongoing. <laughs> exactly. And this expectation of gradual improvement towards a strategic goal, which may change direction because the way you deliver IT changes, the adversary behavior changes, is the way to go. And, and I think this is the one, one statement that will probably bring together what everyone has said here. Um, and that is that's a cultural and a political thing, right? You've got to have that. But most of us as CISOs, we walk into roles expecting to, you know, they, the business expects us to instigate change in two years when it's going to take us seven years to unpick the technical debt. And they expect us to do something sexy. You know, if you read, read Visible Ops Security, great book, what to do in 30, 60, 90 days. But does any of that actually really add any value to the business, right? I prefer to get get the culture and the politics changed with the senior executives in the business. And I think OpRes is giving us an excuse to do that, you know, using Javinda's, um, you know, statement in the part of the play in that with ransomware. Historically, all we've had to deal with as CISOs is secondary losses, litigation, regulatory fines, and... Um, uh, loss of reputation. That's all we had to deal with as CISOs. Now, all of a sudden, we're holding the toilet chain for ransomware incidents and the inability to deliver the mission of the business. But it's IT that's providing all the plumbing, the recovery in the, the uh, stage. So this whole view of resilience, bringing all together culture, politics, agile, gradual um, delivery. I think this podcast has had everything <laughs> in it. <laughs> certainly has, certainly has. Great stuff, great stuff. Uh, okay, so today, lastly, we'll uh, come to you for your question. Yeah, my question is actually a lot simpler than you lot. Um, <laughs> what would you advise an organization to do if they come to you and they say, we want to be cyber resilient? I'll start with you, Alex. Turn things off. Seriously, I mean, I, I said before, I will talk about Chaos Monkeys, but it's one of my favorite examples of, um, you know, Netflix, again, it works in their environment because they're a cloud native situation, but there they have a little uh, Chaos Monkey that runs around and once a day randomly turns off an instance. But again, culturally, they made their engineers anticipate, by the way, we are intentionally going to turn off something random. So your system needs to be able to survive that and they have to design and become familiar. And because they are doing it every day and they are turning things off, they understand really well where those interdependencies, interreliances are. So the first couple of times they did this, it went wrong. It wasn't good. It was painful. But the more they did it, the more they became more resilient because they became happier. They became more comfortable. They knew who to contact, how, what sort of process to run. So how do you want to become more resilient? Easy. Cause yourself pain. Start turning things off. And over time, suddenly the act to turn things off won't be bad. And the only other quick point on that is I can guarantee you go to your boss and you say, by the way, I'm going to turn this off. And they say, oh, you can't do it now. Do it next week. Today's not a great day. It's never a great day. I can guarantee you things will always go wrong on a Friday afternoon, never a Monday morning. It's always just before Christmas. It's always just before, you know, on a Friday. So just turn it off. Just rip the Band-Aid off. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff, Lorraine. Uh, so for me, it's I'm going to tackle it from the communication. I, I think we've actually touched on every part of it in our conversation. So business impact analysis, you know, knowing your business, dealing with the processes, you know, by, you know, you talked about your chaos monkeys, I like that statement, but all of that has to come into play. But for me, a lot of it's got about communication and not being siloed entities, not thinking that it's not my job, but I don't do that. We all have a part to play. The whole point is, is to make the business resilient, right? And we are part of the business. So we have to be in those conversations and, you know, we have to be part of them and we, we just can't sit on the sidelines and other people just can't sit on the sidelines. So we have to bring the business together and make sure that we 
have those adult conversations that you all talked about earlier and make sure that we can prepare as much as we can and you're doing that via chaos monkeys we potentially be doing that through scenarios and testing um, you know, we probably have slightly more planned types of tests than just randomly sh shutting things up. I'm not quite as comfortable with that just yet, but um, hopefully one by one day we'll get there. But yeah, I think there's just preparation, planning, communication and not being siloed. Thanks, Mr. Yeah, I love the chaos monkey theory. I always worry where you've got um, businesses that won't let you pen test certain infrastructure because it's so fragile. You kind of go, that's all you need to know. You don't need to pen test it. You know it's broken, right? Um, and so, but it, it, you know, Lorraine said it, it's adult conversations. Like, I think none of us should go into business, take the salary, and then pretend everything's all right, right? And, and just do a half-hearted job in what we do. We need to go in and have these adult conversations, right? It's like, tell me honestly how bad things are, like, and ask your SOC manager, your IT director, ask all of them, just go in there with honesty and then talk to the board. Honestly, go, your baby is really ugly, right? And the unfortunate thing is some people that will be on your team are responsible for the genetics of that baby, right? And you don't want to throw them under the bus, but you have to have that honest conversation. We are where we are. We're in a new world order now in how we're going to deal with this. We've got operational resiliency requirements being forced upon us if we're an FS organization. We've got ransomware, which we have no control over, like how we're targeted or everything else. We just need to do things differently. And so, you know, that that is what I would say is I would go in and say, we can't stop all the incidents. Forget how much you've spent. We've set the wrong expectations in the past. We have to focus our efforts, as Javinda said earlier, adult conversations um, around resilience, you know, as Alex said earlier, you know, we have to be willing to turn things off and this business doesn't want you to turn things off. Solve the problem about why they won't turn things off before you deploy your 131th tool in the business and start buying something else. And then, you know, as Lorraine says, you know, build that culture and politics um, within the business and and that working together um, to solve a business problem. And, um, you know, that that's what I think cyber resiliency is. Adult conversations, working together, focus on the things that deliver value, agile delivery. Thanks, James. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I like this kiosk monkey theory, but in my world, I translate that into an offensive capability. So um, it it took me quite a while to get board to agree having a kind of an offensive capability which is constantly testing so any any given point in time there's a red teaming going on in some part of the network and only few people handful people know about it because i would rather have uh, and and to james point you know you should know if your baby's ugly right rather than somebody else and coming and telling you so it's about me finding issues that we have and somebody telling you oh there's a hole in that bucket you better plug it because it's going to hurt you um rather than you know an attacker coming and testing us out and 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 that that's where the culture comes in because some people get very initially there was a lot of protectionism about it no no no, no we don't like it we don't like the idea of it um, but then you start turning the conversation to say actually you know what this is actually helping us so you're almost putting two teams against each other the blue team and the red team they're constantly battling against and also what you're doing is what i i always talk about as a muscle memory what you're testing constantly is a muscle memory i have sat on some incident calls which i knew is happening on the back of the red team just to see how the team reacts how the team responds how the flow happens who's taking the decision who's holding back on it and there's so much of learning that comes along with it and I have also seen the benefit of that in a real incident situation because you have tested, you have tested, people know who to do what. So if I am not the plane, I'm not reachable, I have a full confidence there is the right people sitting behind the scene who are absolutely there, who will be on the ball and running with it when it, when it matters the most. And, and I think James was making a point about, you know, there's an obsession about technology, obsession about just buying new products, buy new tech, buy new tools. If somebody looks in the organization, there might be a lot of, there are a lot of solutions out there which was bought either to plug an audit item or for one use case, actually can deliver a lot more. So I always say, you know, it's about sweating your assets a lot. 
is getting your security basics right and getting those basics right consistently and having that offensive capability, which almost keeps testing and builds that muscle memory where everybody knows what role they have to play when that's going to happen. And that's why I always operate in an assume breach scenario. That phone may ring, it's going to go wrong. Do we have a playbook? Do we know who's going to do what at that time? That actually makes you resilient. I think that's a really interesting point, Richard. And it goes back to what you both yourself and Lorraine were saying about continuous pen testing, continuously finding vulnerabilities, continuously understanding. Okay, to me, for, for me, that's looking at the continued assurance, the security element. So are you cyber secure? You're constantly looking at the, the vulnerability side. Are there vulnerabilities, are there things that can go wrong? When I'm thinking about, and why I use the term, uh, you know, sort of chaos monkeys um, and turning things off is because from a resilience point of view, I my assumption is not assume breach, let's go find them. It's assume something's going to go wrong and it's going to fail. Now what? Um, there was a great thing. As I grew up, I used to play musical instrument as a kid. And the difference they always used to say between an amateur and a professional is an amateur practices until they get it right. A professional practices until they can't get it wrong, i.e. if they screw up, they can still pick up from wherever they are and just carry on. And I think it's the same idea of, oh, well, we can't turn it off because uh, I have to do it in a scenario search. The attackers are going to turn it off. They are going to turn it off. That's what ransomware is, is it turns everything off. Can you still operate when things turn off? And I think that's the subtle difference between security and resiliency, at least in my uh, realm and the world, is security might be about reducing the, when you, reducing the risk by reducing the vulnerabilities and trying to address and understand the threats. Resiliency is about reducing the impacts. And together, they help you reduce that risk balance equation. But you've got to focus on the impacts. And when somebody says, you can't test that, you can't turn it off, you go, all right, we won't turn it off. Somebody else will. Then what are we going to do? And if you don't want us to turn it off and have it at least in some sort of controlled manner when we have everybody in the room ready to respond, it's going to happen at 5 p.m. on a Friday when nobody's in the office and it's going to go even worse. And that's why I say the cultural thing of getting people to be comfortable with it. So, sorry, rant, rant over. No, no, so I think the I think point is, a point you're making a good point, but I think the distinction I make is pen test is a very thing because it's kind of a scope report ends. That's not, red teaming is not yeah. that. Red teaming is very much about I'm a state-sponsored nation attack actor. I have I have no idea. All I have been given is this is the organization you need to go after. And now I have got people who are sitting with me. They actually strategize. They sit down. They identify their target attacker uh, target attacks. They identify who are the people who are going to go after. What approach we're going to use. What is the technique that we're going to use. What the tools we're going to use. And literally taking it to the end to end. And that's where it happens. Where when this is going on, when they're successful in the objective, you don't say, you actually don't say that this was a test. You let it roll. You let it roll. You'll actually see how organization is responding in those situations. But again, that's where the appetite of the board comes in because even board members do not know because in some cases we are actually testing what board members are going to, because some decisions have to be made by them. One of the exercises I have done where we have to said in a simulator scenario where we said ransomware is spreading, we need to turn the data center off. So CEO, you have to make a decision. And I'm like, how do I know it's okay or not? You've got to make a decision, yeah. right? And and that's where you test that muscle memory. That's first first time you do it, you build build an understanding that you will be put on the spot to make those tough, hardcore, rapid decisions. And then people start asking the right question. Okay, what do I need at that point to be able to make that informed decision? Who are the key people who are going to contribute to it? And once they start building, then you start getting better and better. It's, you're not going to get better at one time. And that's why it's a muscle memory. Just like you go to the gym, you practice, practice, practice. It's, it takes time. I, I spend a lot of my time like helping customers. the criteria ahead of time while you can think about things logically with all the impacts rather than doing it and stalling when every second is counting it, it's exactly that what's the criteria to disconnect the data center how many machines which critical services compromised likelihood of lateral movement all of these things 
what information is needed to support a business decision, right? Which is what we are as security people. Um, and I love Alex's topic about anti-fragility, right? That's what um, resilience is all about as well. It's it's getting rid of those fragile artifacts that exist within the business with that attack surface that aren't protected well and are going to trip up. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to, because I was just thinking of an example. Um, if you've ever heard Jason Street talk, he's, he's spoken at B-Size London um, a couple of times because as a conference I helped found and uh, he's like you really want to get into the kidnap the CEO's daughter at gunpoint like just ask them to um, you know uh, unleash the hounds on your pen test scope and when you're doing real red teaming they're the kind of things that can happen so what's the criteria for dealing with that I mean we can't threat model ad infinitum but, you know, there's certain things like this, having that adversarial mindset and making sure that we're building as many playbooks for the different kinds of activities that we can uh, we can see. So I'm not suggesting kidnapping any CEO's daughters. <laughs> Good stuff, Good stuff. Uh, any further points you'd like to make on the topic before we wrap this up? No, it's just really interesting and I think we covered a lot and, you know, good to hear all of those other opinions and, and also the, the similarities in the opinions, which I, I really like too. But I'm taking away um, Chaos Monkey. <laughs> I think I'm taking that too. <laughs> oh, that's it. Okay, so I think we'll, we'll leave it there. So this has been the uh, Evolution Exchange podcast. I'll take this opportunity to thank Lorraine, Alex, Jatinda and James for providing their insights on the topic and thank you for listening. If you'd like to get involved in upcoming podcasts, please write, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at robert.wall evolutionjobs.co.uk and we'll see you next time. <laughs>